Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Hey, me, I'm John Wayne. The costume department set me up with these great navy whites. What do you think? I'm trying to watch this. I've seen this movie 13 times, okay? Well, I haven't, so shut up. Watch the movie, it's fine. Wait, favorite part. Got the Benny. Got the Benny. Got the Benny. Got a penny. <laughs> what? Last time I made a jump was in uh, Holland. No, wait a minute. I mean, you haven't jumped since you got out. No, no. I had to make. We have to make a, a jump about once every three months to keep your jump status up. Okay. So just before I came home, I made a jump. Well, I, I went down to the jump fest the other day, yeah. and I don't like their shoots. You know, they, they give you this. Uh, the shoots that we had, you had to go up and you pull on a two, you go right, and you pull on a left, and you go left. And you were able to control your shoot a lot better than that. They didn't look like they had much control. No, I mean, we always came in on the feet. I watched some guys down there, and all you see was arms and legs. <laughs> You know, hello, hello. <laughs> George, uh, thank you. Alrighty. Right, there, there, George. George Laws. Laws. George, keep smiling, we'll catch you again. General Taylor sent in the whole division. Remember, boys, give me three days and three nights of hard fighting, and you will be relieved. Yeah. Hey, like the thing you remember, boys. Why spread disease? So keep your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and we have a special guest tonight. If you're listening to the intro, which you should be because we're just starting the show, you should have a pretty good idea before we get into that. Let's say hi to the very busy father of the year, Mr. Henry Sledge. What's going on, Henry? How are you, How are you doing, sir? I'm, I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a Monday. My uh, boss is on vacation for the first time in 15 years, so I'm kind of running things and just hoping that uh, we can just make it through the week without any fires and now uh, that I'll look good and we can all move on with our lives. Nice. Without any further ado, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest. Well, uh, if you heard that voice over there at the beginning, that was probably one of my top two or three favorite characters from Band of Brothers, and that would be George Luz. And so tonight on What's a Scuttlebutt, we've got my friend, I'm proud to call him my friend now, George Luz Jr. George, how are you doing? Hey, great, Henry. Thank you so much for having me on. It'll be great uh, to share the hour with you and Don. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, before the uh, show started, um, George was telling us that he uh, was his day out at the ranch, and we got to talking a little bit about horses. I'm like, well, hold up. Let's, let's, let's stop this. I think we can all relate to this a little bit. So... How did uh, how did horsing around and uh, come down to your bloodline? How did you get involved in the equestrian lifestyle? Is this one for Henry or me? For you, <laughs> you're sir. You're the guest. It's you're the you. guest. No one cares about Henry. <laughs> They're over Henry. They've they've had oh, okay. they've I had enough of Henry. Sorry. Okay. Well, actually, you know, when I was a kid, way back when, my uh, cousin would help out cleaning stalls, and uh, you get a chance to ride the horses. So when I was a kid, I did that. Uh, a couple of summers, and uh, there's a woman, uh, Karen Dalton, in uh, Foster, Rhode Island, 
And uh, she has a Dare to Dream ranch, and that helps veterans and their families with uh, things that they have to deal with uh, at, during deployments and all those kinds of issues that crop up. So uh, I met Karen three years ago, actually, and um, I had recently been retired, and I said, let's see, what can I do to help at the ranch that would give her an opportunity to do something more important, and that was to be a ranch hand. So Monday's my day. and uh, Mucking so out was, stalls, turning out horses, all the good stuff, huh? It was fantastic. Yeah, it was a great day. It was a nice day. Tomorrow we're expecting some snow. and um, But, yeah, yeah, just getting the horses out there, the horses, and they have goats. So, you know, they have the whole equine therapy and uh, goat therapy, and they've got fishing, uh, trout fishing. And uh, so it's a very comprehensive uh uh, operation to help veterans and uh, we know they need help. So George, you, you find that the, the equine therapy and, and being around the animals and in a more natural bucolic setting, that, that's been proven, has it not? That's been proven to really help guys decompress. Is, is that kind of the thinking behind the whole process there to just help these guys get over the PTSD, get more pleasant things on their minds? Yeah, because it's just the, you know, the, the, the veteran and the animals. And, yeah, uh, yeah so it's amazing. Like Karen, uh, one day when I first was there, she kind of explained to me how it works when you, when you work with a horse hmm. and the process that you go when building that relationship. <laughs> and at the end of this, this 30 or 40 minutes of working with the horse, when the horse, when you turn around and the horse follows you, without you leading them along. It's just the, oh, it gives you chills. There's something, there's something about a horse. It's like a, a horse. Only thing I can compare it to if someone's never been around a horse and gotten the inner, a horse is like a golden retriever that can step on you. <laughs> they're the most gen, for the most part, they're the most <laughs> gentle animal. You can feel them radiating love if, if they're well treated for, obviously. When I moved down here to Southwest Florida, I was taking on as many jobs as I could. I I'm just doing whatever I could. And one of the things, and I had no history prior. Now growing up in Kentucky, my grandfather, my aunts and uncles, they all had horses, horses run in my bloodline, but I've never been around any horses. Anyhow, through channels of communications, I got a part-time gig down here, mucking stalls and letting out horses. And, um, as I tried to get Henry on a gotcha, but unbeknownst to me, he had experience with horses too. I'd learned the proper way to walk them out. And I remember one time I was let, letting out the horses and one of the mothers of the, cause it was an equestrian center. One of the mothers of the student asked me like, how long have you been working with horses? They seem to love you. He's like about a week and a half. <laughs> but it just, it, my family grew up with them. It's in my bloodline. And I have an overall, and we've talked about this a lot with dogs on this podcast. I am a huge animal lover and animals, especially horses and, you know, dogs and, more smart breeds they can pick up on your love and or fear or hatred for them and they will they're like a mirror that way they will reflect oh, that and they will treat you exactly how you treat them mm-hmm. kind of like the old saying you, you know sometimes you'd hear a woman say oh i i judge whether or not i can date a guy by how my dog acts around him because the dog picks up on how they act and whether or not they're quote unquote a good guy or not so uh henry when did you get uh horses and that come in your lifestyle I worked when I was 27. Uh, I worked on a ranch in Colorado. It was in the White River National Forest. And I just, 
I had been reading a bunch of Louis L'Amour books, really got into the whole West thing, you know, and just, I was still single at that time. And, um, I figured, man, this is, if I'm going to do something like this, now's the time to do it before I get married and settle down. And I, I worked some contacts and, and, you know, in this day and age of the internet, it'd be tremendously easier. But back then, Mm -hmm. you know, you had to like fill out a job application and hard copy mail it. But I got put onto a place called Trapper's Lake Lodge in the, in the flat tops wilderness area, white river national forest. And, um, I got hired as a wrangler and I worked there all summer. And, um, so it was kind of a crash course for me to learn horses, but, but I absolutely agree with what you say and, and, and what George indicated earlier. I mean, the, the horses, if, because we would see people come out there to, to do trail rides, uh, on this ranch who were terrified of horses mm-hmm. and they just sit there like complete idiots on top of the horse. Well, the horse figures out pretty quick. This person doesn't know what they're doing. They're scared, you know, and they take advantage of that. And as somebody who saw someone else riding that same horse the weekend prior who had a little more experience, you know that it's not the horse, it's the rider. Yeah, uh, but it's it, – I love being around horses. I mean, they, they are – it is therapeutic, and they – some have more common sense than others, you know. But Like people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure George could agree with that, too. <laughs> No question about it. No question about it. So, George, um, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about your father. Go on down memory lane a little bit. Well, you know, it, it's an it's an interesting and uh, it's really not unique. You know, 16 million American men and women served their country during World War II. And, you know, when it was time to sign up, my dad did as well. And he arrived in Toccoa, Georgia in uh, August of 1942. And uh, he joined the Airborne. And growing up in a depression, $50 extra a month was important. Absolutely. And that's exactly, that's exactly why he joined. Uh, I you think... know, sometimes you think the romanticism of, oh, he, you know, he wanted to join because it was it was brand new concept and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, no, the $50 extra a month was something that was very important for him to, to uh, why he joined in. I've got a clip of my dad talking about that. And he said his dad, his father, just like he said, my dad just wanted to cry and said, what in the world are you going to do that for? So, uh, (laughs) but, um, but anyway, yeah. So he was, uh, you know, he went through the training and, you know, we know the numbers, the numbers uh, that they went through to get the officers and the enlisted guys and, and all that stuff. And, you know, like, Garnier had said this was kind of the cream of the cream um, who made it through. And uh, with the with the help of um, Captain Sobel, uh, who they all despised, but all recognized that one of the major factors why they were successful was because of his training. George, I, you said that. It's like you were reading my mind. I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, let's just dive, let's just immediately dive in on easy company did your dad talk about captain sobel because we know what we've read and heard about him and saw in the miniseries what did george luz say about captain sobel well you know you saw it <laughs> you saw it in the series there where you know you had him cut the fences and things like that so that was <laughs> is his- there a problem here captain sobel? <laughs> <laughs> that dog won't hunt 
Oh, I love that part. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that was one of the stories that, you know, I heard as a kid because, you know, I was very fortunate. I went to reunions at nine years old. Yeah. Uh, my first one was in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, my mom and dad took my sister and I. My brother Steve was a bit older, so he didn't come on that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so getting a chance to hang out with these guys and, uh, you know, listening to the stories. And then after all these years, you kind of grow up around them like you did as well. And, you know, you get a chance to meet these men and their wives at a different level and stuff. But, but yeah, so my dad, he, uh, he shared a lot of stuff with me. I really wish I would have had the technology today then. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're so blessed that, you know, you've got so much of your dad's writings and, yeah. uh, you know, wrote a book and the whole Bible story, man, that's just blows me away. Well, that's a, and, that's a good, um, let's pause real quick there because you and Henry share a similar position in modern day contemporary society. And that is, you know, your father's legacy and not only in the world of world war two, but in these particular many series, what would you do if you're in Henry's? Step. What would you do if you're in that position where there was a George Luz Bible that you know, Congress, you know, Library of Congress said, "Hey, uh, why don't you ship that bad boy out here?" Would you quickly do it, or would you hold on to it for a while? What's that? The uh, the the Bible? Yeah, yeah. George, he's he's talking about the Bible. So I know you're not as familiar with the Pacific stuff and all that, but when, when my dad wrote with the Old Breed, you know, his book. Yeah, it was based on notes that he yeah. kept in his pocket New Testament. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that he carried through the war, which I have. It's on that shelf over there, um, and I've got it in a box, you know, padded up and everything. But that is like really, man. People look at that like that was. And I'm not. We're here to talk about you and your dad. All right. I didn't want to turn this. Make this about me and my no, dad. No, no, but, not at all. This is good stuff. No, but you but, guys but, share this commonality that most people don't. And my well, question was, um, I don't sure. know if maybe George didn't hear, but recently Henry was contacted by a, a person at the uh, the Congressional Library and asked Henry if they'd be willing to tr hand over the, the Bible yeah, for yeah. display. Wow, we, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I remember we had talked about that. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, I don't know. Because, uh, you know, that, that's, got, that's got your dad's hands on it. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I look at, I look at everything around, that we have from my dad, um, you know, okay, that, that's got my dad's hands on it. And that is such a significant thing because, you know, I was, I was looking back at uh, the Pacific because I had watched it. And I got a longer story about watching the series, how cool it was. But, you know, recently going over some of the stuff, listening to your mom, listening to your dad, <laughs> you know, when you, when you put the puzzle together and you look at that, and, you know, number one, it's a Bible. Number one, it was in his hands. It was in the most difficult spot he was ever in. And he had the wherewithal to just put those little blurbs in there, those little words. And then he, you know, went back home and then expanded on it. So, man, I, I'll tell you what, I'm glad you've got to make that decision. Because I don't know what in the world you would do on that one. Hey, George, do you have... Uh, and Don, sorry if I did. You want to ask something, Don? Or? No, we got plenty of time. Go ahead, George. Do you have because, uh, like like me, you were probably really fascinated by World War II history growing up. I know I was, mm -hmm. and my dad did have a lot of his artifacts, um, most of which I have. And did you did your dad have many of his things like uh, uniform 
clothing items, maybe his pack, mm. a canteen, a knife. Did, did he bring a lot of stuff like that home with him, George? <laughs> he came home with absolutely nothing. Nothing. And I'll tell you the story why. Please. Okay, so my dad, it's the end of the war. And, um, and he actually wrote this down. It's the end of the war. And he had to hitch a ride. And so he, he got dropped off. And now he's walking down the road back to wherever the company was. So here comes a German on a motorcycle. So he levels the gun at this German. And he convinces him to get off the motorcycle. After a dialogue back and forth, I'm sure the German didn't understand English. And my dad didn't understand German. But he had the rifle. So yeah. he got the guy off the bike. Now my dad gets on the bike. He never had a motorcycle. He grew <laughs> up in a depression. He probably didn't have a bicycle. So it, he said it took him about 20 minutes to figure out what was going on. So he goes ambling on down the road. And then a couple of German girls called him. And he turned to look like every GI would, a mm -hmm. couple of pretty girls. He turned to look and hit a bridge above it. Ooh. And went crashing to the ground. So, so the MPs picked him up and brought him to a German hospital. And it was just, they looked at the calendar and the war had just ended. And my dad was in a German hospital. And um, so, you know, when you go into a hospital, you know, they cut all your clothes off. And, you know, because oh, yeah. he was all banged up. And, um, and then, you know, his footlocker is back, mm. you know, where the company is. And then it's like. Hey, Luz isn't around. He's going to be in the hospital for a while. Hey, we don't know how long we're going to be here. So they just rifled through all of his stuff, I imagine. So he came up with absolutely nothing. And um, But anyway, yeah, so my sister and I, right up until the very end when we sold the house, we were hoping beyond hope to find a corner of the house, the garage, the basement, where there was this box of just this cachet of things. And it was there was nothing. But anyway, you, on the other hand, you've had all kinds of cool stuff. I, I, yeah, I mean, I was really fortunate in that regard. And I think, I think some of that kind of had to do with the fact that both my, bro my older brother and my dad, you know, they were really interested in historical things. And so, like, perhaps maybe a piece of equipment or a bayonet or something that maybe an ancestor had carried through the civil war. We, we actually had some of that stuff and, and my dad and my brother were always really into history. And so, um, which of course, I mean, my father bringing his things back, that that was just his own decision, you know, as he was returning home from the war. But I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've always considered myself so lucky that I could look at those things and like, like his combat pack. Yeah. You know, when I, when I spoke at, in New Orleans in November, George, and you saw the, the video of it. And so did you, Don. I mean, I took my dad's combat pack over there and laid it on the table in front of us. And you can't see it too well in the, in the video. Uh, but I mean, it, the pack he carried through the entire war. And if you turn it over, you know, the inside of it, what would be against his back, you see, you know, it's a sledge EB, K-3-5, you know, and then a geometric symbol for the 1st Marine Division. And, and it's just, I mean, those are, to, to just be able to lay your hands on something mm -hmm. that was there. Yeah. It's just, man, there's something so visceral about that. Yeah. You know, George, your, your father's story is very reminiscent of Shifty Powers. 
he got to go home, was put on a truck, got in a truck accident, and landed up in the hospital. And by the time he got yeah. home, all his belongings were gone, too. Very similar. <laughs> <laughs> so poor shift. He didn't get anything either. The, the, the answer to that is don't get injured at the end of the war. Well, it, <laughs> well and, and you say that perfectly because anybody who's read the books, I think the time that from the surrender until people got to go home in mass, they're saying like – Almost just as many guys are dying in car accidents, drunk driving accidents, accidental discharge. Like after the war, people were still dying from just yeah. happenstance and tomfoolery. I mean, we all heard yeah. what happened to Patton, but it was happening all around just because you had that many guys there, alcohol, you know, good times and, and bad accidents. You know, we're not talking about, you know, um, Anti-lock brakes. Most of that stuff was all drum brakes, no power steering, and just sure. yep. technology in and of itself wasn't as as safe as it is nowadays. Let me ask you this, because one of the huge differences, I mean, there's a lot of them, but one of the differences, and primarily because of when it was made, at the time of the production of Band of Brothers, so many of the guys were still alive, and they were able to do those pre-episode interviews, which for a lot of historians, that was our one of our favorite parts of the episode. I love opening up. And yep. when you first watch the series, so you might get annoyed that they don't put the little name down there. But if you watch the series enough, you get to know okay, there's malarkey, there's shifty powers. And you can, and to this day, I see the photos of the guys. I know who they are. You said earlier, because you had started going to the reunions at such a young age, what was it like for you by the time that miniseries came out to see these guys that you've just known forever? whether they had the generic nickname of an uncle or a friend of my dad's, what was it like to see them doing these pre-episode interviews when that series came out? Well, you know, that, that was, that was, like you said, that was my favorite too, was to hear it in their own voices. The actors all did a spectacular job. They did an amazing job and, you know, kind of growing up around those guys and, you know, and knowing them all very well. And when my dad was killed, I got to, really connect with them at a different level. I wasn't Luz, but I was Luz's kid. And, uh, you know, it really chokes you up now, especially mm -hmm. now that they're all gone, you know, uh, fortunately enough, those kids, uh, were still connected, you know, whether it's the Compton kids, the Carsons, the Langlois, you know, Chris Langlois, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Gordons, the Garniers, um, you know, and on and on and on. And uh, so it's good that we're able to kind of stay connected. Actually, before before I was kind of getting set up, I had the, the uh, tape of Walter Gordon being interviewed by um, Stephen Ambrose uh, as they were leading up to writing the book. Wow. What Ambrose did was he got together with several of the men and, and did interviews with them because they lived in actually the same uh, same community. So I listened to that, and I'm sure it's it, it's great for you too, Henry. Is you've got tape on your dad? I was watching some of it this past week. You've got tape of your dad talking, and uh, and that's got to be very comforting. It it is, yeah, George. It is. Not um, to mention his mother and the director's cut of the Pacific. Oh yeah, man, that's a tough one right now. It's it's hard for me to hear her voice right now. Yeah, but you'll be glad it's there ten, fifteen years. From oh now. yeah, no, I, I know. I and know. not to mention Henry's beautiful head of hair back then too. I mean, <laughs> in, that, in that video, his hair was on point. <laughs> oh, he had to he had to throw that in there. <laughs> 
Well, we were all different. You know, mine is so gray. Yeah. I start going gray at 16. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. Well, but no, so. But speaking of your mom. Yeah. I, I want to read one thing about your mom. Well, I, don't, I could read more, but I'd, I'd like to just read this because she's talking sure. about your dad. And she says he had been through the worst that life could have thrown at him. And he knew that he was able to stand up to it. Yeah. Which, you know, when I, when, I, when I heard her say that, I had to write it down. Because uh, it was just, you know, it was a great, it was a great quote from your mom. Yeah. Wow, man. No, that's powerful. I remember her saying that. Yeah. But did, you know, did you, when, when were your parents married, George? I mean, were they, so like my mom and dad got married in 1952. Okay. So, so when my dad was going through and I was born in 65. So when dad was going through all that, you know, he and my mom didn't even know each other. Mm -hmm. Um, but they got married in 1952. So for you, were your parents, did they get married pretty soon after the war? How did that shake out? Yeah, because I was born in 56. So I think that they were born in, I, I think that they got married in either 57 or 58. Okay. Because my brother is uh, eight years, uh, older. So yeah, mm -hmm. fifty-seven or fifty-eight. Uh, no, sorry, no. Uh, forty-seven or forty-eight. Okay. Forty-seven or forty-eight. Um, now you know we lived in a community, and so my dad's good buddy, sister. Now, so my, so you know everything is so close, but my dad's good buddy Tony, uh, his sister ended up being my dad's wife, Dell. Okay. Uh, you know, back in the day, my mom's family had 12 brothers and sisters, and my Damn. and my father's side had 10. <laughs> so they had a they had a, a bunch of them. They were Portuguese. So, uh, yeah. And um, I guess they had a lot of kids. But uh, yeah, so they got married in uh, 47, 48, somewhere in that range, because I was born in 56. Okay, well, my, so you're the same age as my brother. Okay. My brother came along in 57. Oh, all right. Yeah. So. It's amazing how old we are. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, Louis. You know, I say to myself, am I really 66? I don't feel 60. Well, some days I feel 66. Yeah. After, after working out at the ranch today, you know, I feel a little 56, 66. But, uh, but yeah, that quote, you know, I was, I've been watching some stuff. You know, on your dad and your mom and that, that little piece there that HBO did was great. Let me tell you a quick story, if I may. Please. Please. Um, so anyway, so here we go. It's the uh, premiere of the Pacific is coming to Boston. Mm -hmm. So my buddy Tim Gray from the World War II Fund. Yeah, Tim Gray. Said, Can you get any tickets for that? And I said, sure, sure. So... Um, so anyway, so I called Marav Brooks, and I said, hey, Marav, could you get a couple tickets for us to go to that? And she said, yeah, that would be fine. And, you know, what's the names and all that stuff? So she, she does all of that. And uh, so we end up getting a chance to go there. And Bruce McKenna was there also. Yeah, my buddy so, Bruce. Yeah, so I, I told uh, a friend of mine, I said, hey, get in touch with Bruce and just tell him I'm going to be there, blah, blah, blah. So we were able to get together and see Bruce and then – and then, um, and then he brought us in to hang out with Tom. 
Mm-hmm. Kurt Sandusky was there. So so Bruce is being interviewed, and um, Bruce is being interviewed by the TV, and I'm just kind of standing in his sight line. So I'm thinking, okay, when he's done, if he looks up, he sees me. He came over, we chit-chatted. I said, hey, man, I, I'm sure you're as busy as can be. And um, so afterwards, we're standing downstairs looking around, and then he, he comes running down the stairs at the Kennedy Library and gives us the universal signal to come this way. Mm-hmm. So we start following him up the stairs. We go up the stairs, around the corner, down the hall, and boom. And then we're in Tom's room. So I got a chance to see Kurt Sandusky mm-hmm. and um, got a chance to hang out a little bit with Tom. But the interesting thing was there was this, there was this Pacific veteran. His name was Joe Drago. And he was sitting right next to us, my mm-hmm. wife and I. So we got a chance to watch it with him. And every week after that, mm-hmm. I would call him up on like the Monday and we would just talk about the episode because he was, uh, you know, Pacific vet and he was, uh, you know, in a lot of the same places your dad was. And um, I would ask him just different stories about that, you know, this and that. And I, the funniest story was, I guess there was a gunny sergeant who was walking along. It started raining and then no. he a bar of soap out. <laughs> And I, said, Haney. <laughs> I said, did you have a guy like that? He says, sure. Everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, what differentiates Haney from everybody else is, as yeah. Henry's father so, so eloquently really, put it, is he would wash certain parts of his body with a steel wool brush. <laughs> but, yeah, that was great. And then, and then and the crust of that story was, so Joe Drago comes to the, he's, he goes with a friend of his, a buddy of friend. I think it was a police officer. They couldn't get tickets, and he said, screw it. Let's just go. So they show up. He comes up to the uh, the girl with the booklet and all that stuff and the programs, and the girl said, oh, hi, sir, what's your name? And uh, he said, Joe Drago. So she's looking at the list and can't find his name, and the other girl, they can't find the name, and the girl looks up, and he looks at the girl and said, my name's not on that list, but I was there. And she takes a program and a hat and slides it across <laughs> and says, go right in, sir. Perfect. You know, so, uh, so anyway, Joe Drago was just a super guy. And like I said, he was, so he was my connection to the Pacific watching each and every episode. Well, see, that's cool that, you know, with, with your father being ETO and, and, a key figure in Band of Brothers and, and all of that, that's cool that when the Pacific came out, you were that interested. Yeah. You know, I, I love, I mean, that's awesome that, so when, take us back to when Band of Brothers, when, when did you first read Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers? Well, you know, it came out uh, in 92. Yeah. And uh, naturally my dad came home from the reunion, uh, from the book opening. And uh, so he came home with a bunch of books and gave us all our book. And, and that's when I kind of dove into it. And uh, so that was the first time I had read it and stuff. And um, and then there's so many, you know, you know, like your dad's story, like, you know, those all those guys. There's so many books out there that's got so much cool information. And same thing with, uh, you know, Band of Brothers Webster's book. I don't know if you've ever read Parachute Infantryman. Oh, man, that's I I love that one. It's a great book. Yeah. There's a lot of my dad in the second part of that. I'll have to get that one. It really shows the. The essence of that. Don, have you read Parachute Infantry? I ha- I do not have that one. I have a bunch of 
um, Easy Company base books. Um, I have a, you know, I've got Garnier and Heffern's uh, Best of Friends. Yep. I've got Hang Tough. Yep. i got a bunch of them, but I don't have that one. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, too, For Henry brought it up. We know that many of your father's generation didn't talk about it too much because everybody was there. So why talk about it? We all experienced everybody was there. How did he feel about when the book came out that all the guys that he served with were the center, the main focus of this book? What, what did he, how did he feel about that? Well, you know, the interesting thing with my dad was when Ambrose initially sent out um, the flyers and said, okay, because they all met, you know, at the Modellion Hotel in New Orleans. And, uh, and then after some discussions, it's like, hey, you know, we could probably write a book about this. So we want everybody to fill out these forms that Ambrose is going to send out. And my sister is the one who really deserves the credit for that, my sister Lana, because she was the one who kind of leaned on my dad and said, hey, hey, dad, you've got to fill out this form because he really didn't care. Sure. Um, you know, he just felt as though, hey, I was there with these guys. I'm sure my name's going to be in there somewhere. It's not that big of a deal. But my sister leaned on him to fill out that form. And um, so, but um, yeah, he was super proud of serving with those guys and the, the, what he would have liked, the couple of things he really would have liked about the series was, you know, the series, it had guys going everywhere. They were doing this and they were doing that. And they were invited to this super bowl and the, you know, the Kentucky Derby and world series games and all kinds of stuff. And all those extra trips that, HBO and G put together, he would have loved the extra time with the guys. Yeah. Because he yeah. got together every year. They got together every year, you know, my mom and stuff with with uh, all the guys and their wives. And um, that's what he really would have loved was the extra time with the guys. Not as much the not as much the glory. Well, I guess for lack of a better term, the glory of it all. It's it would be that extra time. <laughs> With the men with who he loved so much, and they loved each other. Real quick question, because I was actually I'm just about wrapping up the longest day of the book, not the movie. I like the book so much better, but I digress. Um, and I I came I came up with a question for you. You may not know this, maybe you don't. Do you know? Because obviously, D Day invasion, all havoc. Pilots are dropping guys low, dropping them fast, dropping them here, dropping them there. Just get them out of the plane. Let's get the hell out of here. Do you recall where your father actually landed on D-Day? How far from his DZ he ended up? Maybe who he linked up with first after getting his gear together and figuring out where the hell he was? Well, actually, uh, Paul Woodage, uh, you know, famous historian uh, in, uh, in Normandy. And uh, he's the one who actually we worked together with a group. I can't remember if it was a Tim Gray event. And so he had us go out with Paul. And uh, so Paul was telling us different stuff. And he said, this guy landed here and this guy landed here. And then he said, Harry Welch. He said, okay, so Harry Welch landed right in this area here. So I said, hey, my dad was second in the stick right back of Harry. So he said, okay, let's look at the map. The wind was blowing this way. And he says, okay, so your dad landed in between this area and this area, um, you know, however many feet after where Harry landed. But uh, when my dad landed, um, 
he didn't know he didn't really see anybody. He only he ended up running into a uh, an officer from headquarters company. And um, but yeah, so I, I kind of know where he landed. Thanks to Paul Woodage. That man, that's I love Woody. He does great work. Yeah, it's that's amazing cool how that he was able. It's amazing how small this community is because we've had him on the show. We all know him, and it's like every time we have a new guest on, everybody knows everybody. It's just such a even worldwide. It's it's such a great small community. <laughs> I love it. It certainly is. It certainly is. And you know, we we just, we just look at how blessed we are. The connections. The, the friendships that we've made, and every time we go back to Europe, you know, it, you, you get a chance to plug into people. You're in Bastogne, mm-hmm. you're, you're Fred, uh, Reg, or Frankie Gubbles, or, you know, Ron Stasman. You know, the whole, the list is endless. Now, obviously, amongst young cats like that, even outside of war, even if you're just, you know, a group of guys who've known each other since a long time or gone through something, there's always a tale that's told at every reunion a story, if you will, lore. Is there anything that you can remember from all your time going to those reunions before the fame and all that? And after, you know, like you're five or six, oh, great. There's dad telling that story again, or, oh, there's Mr. <laughs> Winters telling that story again. Is there a particular story you remember that was lore or legend that just, you heard it every year to a certain point, like, oh, now with this again, is there anything like that that our audience might enjoy hearing because they've never heard it <laughs> a thousand times? Well, you know, Walter Gordon, Walter Gordon said it, it very well. He said something about, he said, you know, you're never quite sure if it's a legend result of a fact or a fact resulting from a legend. I'm not quite sure which one, but, um, but yeah, well, you know, I can share the kinds of stuff. I, I could say the men always talked about more of the humor yeah. of mm. everything that was going on. And they were living more in the, the now. And, and that was, uh, that was one of the other things I noticed. It was more in the now than a lot of the stories although you know maybe when all the drinking was going on i was probably in bed when some of those stories were being told well, but the- you gotta remember when i like my very first reunion at nine years old i've, I've said this before i was happy the place had a pool <laughs> so it's like well that's important that's like that's like henry big time and snafu when he was a kid <laughs> don loves this story love that story snafu comes huh? over he's hanging out with henry's dad and henry's dad's like Henry, I want to introduce you to somebody. He's like, hey, what's up? I got some baseball. I'm out of here. That's not. Okay. Don's exact. So, George, what he's talking about is you saw the Pacific. You know who Snafu was? You know, he and my dad were gunner, assistant gunner. Snafu was gunner. My dad was assistant gunner on the 60. And so <clears throat> Snafu was from Louisiana. And when they, they didn't really keep in touch or anything until my dad's book came out, which was 1981. Okay, well, so, you know, Snafu Shelton over there in Louisiana somehow comes upon a copy of the book, or probably not long after it came out, because it's like, oh, Peleliu Okinawa, well, I was there, you know, and then finds out he's a starring character in my father's memoir, as he should have been. And so anyway, in 1984, which is three years after With the Obrey came out, he he and my dad reconnected, and, and he and his wife came over to Alabama to visit my parents. And so I was home from college because uh, I had just started college that year. And 
I come walking in and, you know, I'm, I'm walking down the driveway at my parents' house and I see a car with Louisiana plates on it. And I didn't know who it was, you know, and <clears throat> I go walking in and there's a, I walk in the living room and, you know, my parents are in there entertaining guests and there's this kind of stocky short guy sitting there. And my dad says, Henry, this is Snafu. Snafu, this is my son, Henry. And I was like, yes, sir. It's a pleasure to meet you. He's like, yeah, your daddy and I were good friends in World War II, you know? And I was like, yes, sir. And you know, I knew who he was. Yeah. I'd grown up here in Snafu. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, I, I was just like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to. I'm just going to go. I'm going to a party tonight. <laughs> and I just, oh my God, I wish I just. So Henry had a party to go to. Young George was busy doing cannonballs and backflips in the pool. <laughs> I wish I just sat there and listened to, to them. No, no, no. You're exactly right. And I'll tell you a story. I'll, I'll tell you a story similar to that. So it's the 1981 reunion. In, um, and I, I, I actually told the story recently. Yes, the 81 reunion in San Diego. Buck Compton uh, was kind of the host. So I got a chance to meet Buck, uh, Buck's two daughters, Cindy and um, uh, Tracy. And uh, Walter Gordon's two daughters, two of Walter Gordon's four daughters, B.B. and Linda. And um, Marianne Malarkey. And uh, my parents brought my old girlfriend on the trip, too. Nina. I was living in uh, Denver at the time. And, um, but anyway, yeah. So uh, one night, you know, we were all just kind of hanging out. And so we ended up going to some bar. So everybody was hanging out back over here telling those stories. And I just went with the, well, Marianne couldn't go because she was only 16. So I just went with a bunch of the girls and we just went to some bar and just laughed and giggled, I'm sure. (laughs) And didn't hear the stories. So I can understand that going to the bar thing. Because you sure. were probably what twenty twenty one or 22? I was, I was nineteen. Nineteen, okay, okay. Yeah, I was nineteen. I, I remember the day, man. And God, looking back, I just, I wish I just sat there and soaked it up. Because man, I, I just, just like you with your dad, you know, talking about his Easy Company buddies. I mean, I, I remember my dad talking about Elmo Haney when I was a little kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember the name Snafu. I mean, I. We almost named one of our dogs Snafu. <laughs> we ended up not. We went another direction. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, it was just, you know, it was part of your, you know what I'm talking about, man. It's, it's just part of your DNA. Yeah. 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 Whenever I meet, um, especially, you know, with the emergence of the series, when I would meet some of the kids I hadn't met and, you know, we, we've known each other for 20 years. And I'd say, I'd say, you know, we, we've, we've only known each other for this mer- this period of time but we go back to 1942 in Tacoma mm-hmm. yeah and uh and that's kind of how we feel you know it's it's a depth of it and and you, you've got the same thing you know you're dealing with the same kind of a thing there it's kind of like and your it, third well, cousins or something you're way ahead of me george because and i, I kind of wanted to explore this with you because like I, I, you know, everybody knows how close i am to my dad's story and how passionate i am about that history and how I feel about K-3-5. You know, with you, it's easy company. With me, it's K-3-5, K company. You know, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. And, but I I didn't, I grew up hearing about all of that, but I didn't go to reunions. I mean, my dad didn't go to a reunion until after his book came out. And so, 
you know, I, I didn't have that. That's like, that's an awesome experience for you. It was like, they were the easy company kids were like extended family for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I didn't, I didn't have that. I didn't have that angle of it, but I, I do feel like K company and, and certainly I met some K company, um, sons and daughters when the Pacific came out and that was kind of cool. But mm-hmm. I met Bill Layden's son who, you know, Bill Layden, um, and you were very familiar with Pacific, you know, he, he was, I loved his character. You know, he was the one on Okinawa. It was like, she wrote them a letter, you know, a letter. <laughs> She's not your wife. She's not your wife, you know, but <laughs> Bill, Bill Layden was a wonderful man. I mean, he, he was the first, he was the first guy, George. He was the first guy that I called when my dad died. Wow. Yeah. That's and he was, he was just a wonderful man. Yeah. Well, you know, and you can have that, you can have that too with their kids. If they're receptive, because not all the kids are receptive, you know, they've all got their right. own lives. And, um, you know, sometimes we talk about that, you know, when we're at a reunion and it's the, this core of us uh, that go to the reunions and, um, we just say, hey, how can we, how can we, um, and we've got some next generation too. We've got some, uh, you know, a grandson, a granddaughter, uh, you know, Don Malarkey's uh, granddaughter uh, comes to the reunions. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, just to kind of bring the group together even more. And then we just come to the realization that, okay, hey, people know that we're getting together. Uh, if they want to join us, they certainly can. And if they don't, hey, let's face it, everyone's life is busy. Right. And, um and, um, you know, their dad's service uh, may be important, but not that important to go on a vacation and hang out with people because we do something very similar that the, the men do. You know, they didn't just sit around and talk about, you know, this battle or that battle. You know, there was a certain amount of that. I'll tell you, uh, you know, when when you got a chance to sit there and listen to the third platoon guys, you know, whether it was Paul Rogers and Shifty and Earl McClung, you know, just kind of sitting there. And those three guys would be talking and we'd all be kind of sitting around the edges, not saying a peep and just listening to them tell their stories. And, you know, the old story about Earl with the the, the house of ill repute, let's just say, uh, you know, I guess he went in some house and, you know, they're shooting the thing up and whatever it was. But just listening to these guys tell these stories and we're just sitting there just enjoying the heck out of them, watching their interaction together. Because in that moment, they're back with each other. Yeah. You know, and it's like, so I didn't experience that George, like in person, like you did. But what I did experience was like my dad hated talking on the phone. I mean, it was a joke when I was a kid, I'd call him on the phone when I was in college and he just, yeah. Uh-huh, okay. All right. All right. But you know, he was just real abrupt. He hated talking on the phone. You let one of his old K companies, buddy, K company buddies call him. And he would just shut the door, and my mom would just come out rolling her eyes. <laughs> you know, and he'd, he'd be on the phone for three hours. Yeah, yeah. And you this know, is back before we had unlimited calling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Long-distance bills. Yeah, really. Oh, I know. Can you imagine? Because, you know, you're exactly right. If if you were in Rhode Island and you called and you called this Mississippi, Alabama, whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, mm-hmm. that's a toll call. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's not like unlimited, <laughs> unlimited. So, um, but there was a lot of correspondence too. Did your dad correspond a lot with his yes. letters and stuff and cards? And he, he did George and that. So, well, so, uh, the, the guy, I don't know 
you're very familiar with the miniseries. Don, I'll know. Don, you know who Doc Caswell was. Yes. Um, one of the things, George, that that he talked about Doc Caswell in the book quite a bit. Doc Caswell was Kent Caswell. He was a Navy corpsman attached to them to the mortar platoon, and um. He did not make it into the miniseries. Just, you know, Bruce and I talked about that. I mean, you know, like, okay, so the scene in part seven, George, where they have, and Don, I don't mean to be no, not no talking no, to you, but no. you know the series. Uh, yeah, I was going to say so, they, they gave that car- that role to the doc of Leckie's platoon. He's the one they showed on all the on all well, the scenes. But when they were up in the hills of Peleliu in part seven, and they're sitting there taking five or taking ten whatever, and Sledge sees the Japanese, the dead Japanese soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, he sees those gold teeth. And yeah. he's thinking about it because he saw Snafu do it. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> in the miniseries, he starts to do, pulls his K-bar out, which is right there. Yep. Wow. He pulls his K-bar out, and he's about to do it. And Snafu says, what you doing, Sledgehammer? Don't. Germs. All these nips got germs. It was Doc Caswell who really did that. Oh, okay. Kent, Kent Caswell was the one who really did that. And there's, and Don, there's a lot of stuff about Kent Caswell in the unpublished portions that I've come across uh, that didn't make it into with the old breed. But yes, to your point, George, uh, like he and Doc Caswell exchanged Christmas cards for many, many, many years. Um, and then, and you know, and the cool thing about all my dad's papers being archived at Auburn University. Um, all these letters, all this correspondence um, is there. And I've been able to under, I want to go spend a couple of days at that, at those archives and really dig through his letters. I mean, hell, I remember a bunch of them coming to him in the mailbox, you know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a wealth of information in, in those letters. And just like with your dad, I mean, those, yeah, they were, they wrote to each other. Well, that's a great thing to have those as a resource. And then it's just within within the body of you could just kind of see how much these guys loved each other with mm-hmm. whether it was, you know, the way they opened it, whether they whether how they closed it, just those little lines in there that were written with just feeling beyond feeling and stuff. And it's great to have that stuff. And, um, you know, I've got a bin full of uh things that my dad had had with his buddies and stuff so it's it's it is really neat and comforting to go back and read those and then and then there's kind of connected dots with some of these things mm-hmm. you know uh connecting with a picture or something like that or I, I, was, I was going through a few things recently there where i just kind of connected a few dots and and stuff and which is which is really which is really cool to to mm-hmm. do that and i'm really blessed you know because i travel with Stephen ambrose historical tours Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I go with my buddy, Chris Anderson. He's the senior historian or maybe one of the senior historians. Or, But he knows the men better than anybody because mm-hmm. he spent the most amount of time with the men. Ron Drez did as well. Uh, but Chris really spent a lot of time with the men. So I travel with them. And and um, in Webster's book, there's this passage in Webster's book when they were in Hackenau. And you saw it in the series where my dad was flipping candy bars to the guys. I was watching that scene today. Jesus Christ, I have some of you rich. (laughs) Oh, he gets a Hershey bar? Well, he got shot in the ass. You didn't get shot in the ass. You got shot in the ass, get a Hershey bar. Hey, you got to be shitting me. (laughs) I watched that scene earlier today. 
<laughs> so, um, uh, so anyway, yeah. So the, um, so that story. And if you remember after that story, they talk about, I got to go blast the building web. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's this, this young kid. Now I, I read it in, in, I read it in Webster's book and it's like, Oh man, I'm hoping that this story is going to come in the series. It didn't. But anyway, I always wondered what building they were talking about. Mm-hmm. So I got a message from this young kid, historian uh, in uh, Hagenau, Tom Fry. And uh, he says, hey, you know, he introduced himself. And I said, hey, you wouldn't happen to know what building my father blasted, would you? <laughs> and he said, I certainly do. So my last trip over there in, was it in last May, uh, last uh July, I think it was my last trip with uh, Ambrose last year. I met with Tom and his girlfriend. I think it was his girlfriend or his wife. So he brought me to the building and he explained and we read through the we read through Webster's passage. And, you know, he brought me to the spot and he says, OK, OP3 was here. They talked directly across the river was the house that they blasted. So what he did was he went to those houses that are right there, and he met this little old lady who's like 90. Mm-hmm. And so she was there during the war. So he asked her, he says, you know, at the end of the war, um, you know, what was going on? She said, well, when we came back to our house, it was blown apart on the inside. <laughs> so that is indicative of my father with the bazooka because he took three shots with the bazooka and uh, so it was kind of really neat uh, to kind of close the loop on that particular story. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting was after, you know, Tom kind of put it all together. I said, how come I couldn't figure that out? Because I knew where OP3 was, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes you're not really thinking. But, yeah, because it was directly across the river. So I've been there so many times. And now, um, you know, the next time I go, well. <laughs> I'll point that building out to our guests and say, that's the building that he blasted this. <laughs> over how but, many uh, years have you been going back, going over there? Well, I've been traveling with Ambrose since 16 uh, on their tours. And I think my very first trip, my very first trip, I don't know, it might have been the premiere in 2001. My wife and I do a lot of traveling anyway, but the very first trip to Normandy, I think, was was uh, in 2001 to Normandy. The reason I the ask world, is obviously... the world premiere. The reason I ask is obviously when the veterans go back, things have changed substantially. But in the amount of time you've gone, has are those areas kind of captured in time or has progress changed a lot of that scenery just in the short period that you've been going? Well, you know, let's say Bastogne, for example... The trees in Bastogne, trees in you know trees in that region of the world are a resource. Mm-hmm. So the trees where in let's say the Borjak, those weren't the trees that were there then. Those are probably two or three generations, because mm-hmm. trees grow for twenty or thirty years and then they cut them down and plant new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, where Winter's CP was, those got to where Winter CP, and you know that area's been cut. So you know they're growing new trees there as well. Uh, but by and large, though, not is a lot of places that time has stood still. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they've done a great job of trying to keep this stuff together and capture and preserve that history. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I am so blessed to be able to travel with Ambrose and, and do all of that stuff. And, 
And, you know, people say, well, you know, why do you go on the same trip? You go on the Band of Brothers trip, you know, most every time. But it's like, I know the story, mm. but it's different guests every time. So it's a different tour. And I get a chance to share these stories with all these people about my dad. And I do a speech and I do a speech halfway through with audio clips and video clips and stuff. And um, it's just a blast. You know, I'm just I'm just blessed to be able to do that. And, you know, people um you know people have a passion for history so you know mm -hmm. i think we're, we're in a unique position you know henry to be able to uh, to share these stories you know it it was as you talk about going back and to, to normandy and bastogne and going to hagenau or hagenau <clears throat> it's probably george for you the same feeling i got which it's not nearly as accessible but i went to peleliu in 1999 and when we went to that sector of Orange Beach, too, where K-35 came ashore, um, I, I will never forget the feeling I had Oof. seeing that, seeing that water. And, and, of course, you know, my situation was a little bit different because my father did eloquently describe it in a book that got published, and a lot of people read it, you know. And, and so I just I reread those chapters time and time and time again when I was on that trip, you know, and the airfield where they attacked across in which he described, he said that was probably the most terrifying experience of the war for him was charging across that airfield on D plus one at Peleliu mm -hmm. because they were under really heavy fire and to walk across and my friend, Eric Maylander <clears throat> was on that trip. And he, I said, Eric, put me on that airfield. I want to go across right where my dad went across. He said, okay, I know right where to put you. Mm. and so we, we he did and a, a gentleman named he was Colonel Joseph Alexander he's actually the guy I named my son after he was a Marine Vietnam he was a Vietnam Marine but a well-known historian he was on that trip he and I became dear friends he, he and my dad were already friends because he had written about my dad and some things but I can remember him saying hey let's just give Henry a few minutes here mm. Mm. and I just kind of walked around and, you know, listen to the jungle sounds. And I mean, it was hot, man, the heat was radiating off that coral, you know, but not nearly as hot as it would have been, mm, uh -huh. you know, but for you, I mean, to go back to Normandy, I mean, <clears throat> so obviously your dad probably came down pretty close to San Miraglis. Yeah. Yeah. Actually there's kind of a parking lot in the back. Let's say you're looking at the, let's say you're looking at the side door. Everybody goes mm -hmm. in the side door. So if you if you go up to the right in the back, there's a parking lot. There's a cemetery in the parking lot, mm -hmm. and up in that parking lot is where he landed. Is that right? But uh, but yeah, that, so that must be really cool for you to to, to go back, you know, to Peleliu and to stand there. And you know, <laughs> you know, we, we know the significance of uh, not even the significance of the 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 battle, but the the reality is your dad was right there and and you're able to walk in his footsteps you know well, just like when you go to that parking lot i mean yeah. did, don't you just stand there and think man this is you look around and just he came down right here yeah 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 and that's that's the amazing thing is you know just just you know we're walking through their footsteps yeah and, um, you know by no you know, when, did, did were you ever in the military uh uh, Don? No, um, my microphone. Uh, 
Don, it got better there for a little while, but it's pretty fuzzy right now. Well, I think the biggest problem is is Perfect. Hurricane Ian, no power for 16 days, so all my windows, so I, my mixing board got a lot of humidity on it during that period of hurricane. Well, well, I had to change it. I went from pot four to pot three. I literally switched to a different pot. It's, it's crazy. But what I was trying to say is we by no means want to stymie the growth of an area, particularly areas in the South Pacific. And so you want those countries to thrive and their people to grow. But there's part of us as historians, we hate to see those battlefields <coughs> produced turn into something else and when i watch a lot of the video footage of like guadalcanal so much of that has changed like you see all these houses and buildings now around some of those areas once again you can't say oh you guys can't develop it you're happy to see that things are developing but there's part of you just a little part that wishes maybe you could just leave that little area alone but you know that's that's kind of the cross we all have to bear yeah yeah how do you do how do you uh how do you strike that balance yeah right how do you strike that balance? Especially because in a you, country where people are doing whatever they can to feed their families and come up with any sort of revenue opposed to, you know, a developed nation. Yeah. And then you look at every corner, every street, every every one of these areas has something going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, uh, we, you know, the joke, the joke that, uh, you know, easy company won the war and hey, you know, no, nobody else did anything else. And, you know, that, that whole joke that, you know, you hear the easy company guys naturally say, hey, no, we were just one small part of it. And mm-hmm. um, but, you know, you read about all there, there were great stories around every turn. And, you know, that was one of the things sitting with Paul Woodage and Chris Anderson and discussing being a historian, being a guide in Normandy, let's just say. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. In the in the wealth of stories heroic stories that can be shared but because they're not tied to a specific battle they remain undiscussed but they're just as significant in the same level of heroics went into these Mm. battles and uh, so that's the challenge historians have is is Telling people more of the stories, not just the story that they saw in the miniseries, or they yeah. read in, in this book. You know, the 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 World War II Guide for Dummies, which is a book I've read in the beginning. And the nice uh, thing is, is there's so many stories out there, and so many people out there, and somewhere something's documented that there is so much material for future productions to bring other people's names to light. Um, a few we- episodes back, I was here gushing about how I loved rogue heroes and I thought it was great. I didn't know anything about how the SAS got formed and the guys who brought that to life in this mini series that's produced by the same people who did Peaky Blinders is presenting the story of the SAS, the British special air for um, their paratroopers in a way that doesn't, you know, for people who may not be interested in world war two per se, but the show is done in such a way that you don't have to be a, World War II aficionado or historian to love the show because it's it's kind of modernized, but it's still World War II and it still gets a message across, and it's done really well. I know Henry was checking out a few episodes. Yep. 
But my point being is there's so much material out there that we all know Hollywood's gone creatively bankrupt and they just remake the same crap over and over again. So maybe someone goes digging through some old library books, they'll find a book from 1954 that maybe wasn't a bestseller but has some great stories and great characters in it and we can bring those people to light too. So there's so much material out there. George, did your... I know how my dad felt about this. Did your dad care much for war movies? He liked the sound of music. He <laughs> <laughs> liked the sound of music because it reminded him of Austria. <laughs> you know, it, it, a quick story. When we were kids, I, I think that movie came out in 1965. Mm-hmm. I think it was 65. And we all went. It was my mom and my dad. My brother didn't come again. So my sister and I, we were in the station, and we saw that movie in 1965. And then in, um, in New Hampshire, Stowe, Vermont, they have a place, and it's similar to the Van Trapp family or whatever the situation mm-hmm. is. I can't remember exactly. But, uh, but, yeah, so anyway, yeah, so he liked that one. But I'm trying to think which war movies we may have watched, you know, Dirty Dozen and... Um, my, see, my dad hated him. He 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 had no, he had no desire. I, I I will tell you this. So this is skipping ahead a bunch of years, but when Saving Private Ryan came out, okay, so Dale Die called my dad, mm-hmm. and I, I wasn't there when this happened. My, my dad told me about it. Um, Dale Die called my dad and was you know kind of. Because that was the first time they'd done the whole actor boot camp thing. You know, it was the first time they really used that that business model, if you will. And so Dale Dye called my dad up and was kind of talking up Saving Private Ryan and how realistic it was. And, you know, you ought to, you ought to see it. You know, you'd find it very interesting or something like that. And I remember my, my dad told me, he said, Dale, there's a better chance of me going in that kitchen and putting my hand on a hot stove than there is of watching that movie. <laughs> he says, I don't need to watch the movie. I've already seen it. That's right. That's right. He lived it. He lived it. Yeah. You know, but I lived in Ohio at the time and my grandparents were in Kentucky. So I didn't get to talk to my grandfather who was there about his impression, especially the opening scene. But from what I understood, he told my mom that very realistic very reminiscent of what he remembered but i was too young then and i wasn't around to get his his uh take on it but from what i understood he it was a hard watch mm-hmm. well my dad um i went to see the movie with my father um winters was invited to go out to a premiere in hollywood and then he sent all of the guys in the company this letter. And it just said, uh, you know, he explained I was invited to go out there, blah, blah, blah. And I encourage all you guys to go see this. So, uh, and actually, there's a, there's a video of my dad explaining that. So the, um, we go. All right, now, my dad wasn't the most patient guy. And you know how movies are. Mm-hmm. You go in, you sit down. 45 watch- minutes of previews. Yeah, yeah. So like my dad is getting a bit fidgety, you know, and I was getting fidgety because I know he was getting fidgety. So anyway, okay, so here comes the movie. We watched the whole movie. And um, so we know what we saw. So the movie's over. We all stand up and every, you know, it's quiet and they're rolling the credits. And my father looks at me and says, 
what the hell was that? <laughs> we weren't in any of those places. <laughs> they were marching too close together. <laughs> Watch your intervals, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I think that was his mechanism of, well, there were two reasons. One of them was to diffuse whatever emotions mm -hmm. he had just endured. Sure, yeah. Right? And the second one was, you know, because they were trashing the airborne guy. What yeah. do we got to go and save this airborne guy for? And uh, but anyway, so that was kind of funny. So people are like looking at this guy saying, what is going on with this guy? <laughs> <laughs> but well, uh, yeah, I, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. You know, we did go to see that, but I think he kind of went a little begrudgingly. I think he mm -hmm. went as Winter said, you got to go. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so he did. When you're telling that story, I had a, a thought, a memory. Different movie, but when it comes to a World War II movie that had a huge impact on pop culture at the time. And I remember I saw it with my parents, Schindler's List. And mm -hmm. that theater, by the time the credits were rolling, all you heard, if you heard mm -hmm. anything, was people trying to cover up the fact that they were crying. That movie was so damn powerful and had such an impact on society and pop culture at the time. Like, you know, to this day, I almost think that should be required watching for like high school history class, even though nowadays they wouldn't let it. But that is such a powerful movie. But I, I didn't have the opportunity to see Save It Private Ryan in the theater, but I'm sure for a lot of people, it was very, especially after that closing scene with the older Matt Damon, you know, I hope, you know, I hope I made you proud. I'm sure. Walking out of there, it was probably pretty quiet with the exception of your dad saying, what the hell was that? They're too close together. <laughs> yeah. Their jackets right. were the wrong color. Oh, they put Vaseline on the lens, Dad. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a riot. That was a riot. But no, you, you, that, the run of them, you know, we, when we look at it, you know, with your, with your dad, with your dad, Henry, you know, we look at the emotions that these guys had to deal with. What they saw. And then a lot of people say, you know, they, when they came home, they didn't share a lot of stories. And, hey, for good reason. Why in the world would a soldier want to come home and share the ugliest things that he has ever witnessed in his life with his wife, his son, his daughter, his brother, his sister? He wants, you know, in most cases, these guys just want to put that away. Oh, yeah. Of you course. Know? I remember my mom telling me that <clears throat> when... And, and she was digging back through the years. But when my dad came home, um, which again, she didn't meet him till you know, what, 1951, I guess. But he, she had heard like my aunt or, or my great aunt and my grandmother, she had heard them talk through the years. And, and when my dad came home from the Pacific, they were almost scared of him. You know, not that he was psychotic and going to go nuts, but just for one thing, you know, my dad grew up in a pretty genteel, he was, he was brought up uh, in a genteel way. We'll just say that very well bred. And, you know, it's like when he came home, his, his mannerisms, his language, his table manners, it was all just, he, he had just become this, this person that his family didn't recognize. Wow. And, um, platoon, and it was, huh? The scene in platoon, and they're talking about going home. And the one guy said, I just got, he's like, How you going to act when you're eating in front of your and dinner? You're from mom, past the effing potatoes, mom. You know, he's talking about how he went back 
on a short leave and then came back because he got wounded. And the other guy's like, oh, I'm three, you know, three more weeks, I'm out of here. And talking about all the stuff he's going to do. And he's like, well, how are you going to act around your family when you're home? Because you're not going to be the same person. And how shocked his mom was when hearing his dialogue, his vernacular, being in the Marine Corps for so long and then being home. That's kind of what it reminds me of when you're talking about his behavior and the way he acted. Yeah, and I know there was one time where my mom said my dad had gone into the back room um, and laid down to take a nap one afternoon. And my his aunt, my great aunt, my, my grandmother's sister, went back there and was looking for him. Where's Eugene? Where's you? She went back there and went up to him and grabbed him by the shoulder and tried to shake him awake. And he came up with his hands around her throat. Mm-hmm. And then he immediately, when he realized, he felt terrible when he yeah. realized what had happened, you know. So I'm not trying to create drama where drama didn't exist. But, I mean, he came up at her and put his hands around her throat, and then he, he caught himself. But yeah. it was, the point of that was that, you know, here's my genteel great aunt, uh, you know, his aunt, who just shakes him awake. And it was just this completely different plane of existence, you know, and the same for the guys that had been in the ETO. I mean, they had to, they had to adapt and, and then come home and decompress and, and somehow reassimilate back into what that normalcy was. Yeah. Well, all the guys who were in the, in the European theater, look at your dad and the guys in the Pacific and they, and they realize what, that you, your father and, and the guys in the Pacific had it much worse than the guys in Europe. Um, I think in the case of my dad and his buddies, when they came home, they all came home on a troop ship. Well, a group, you know, groups of them. Some guys had points. Hmm. My dad had enough points to come home. So, you know, a lot of these guys came home together. And uh, so they were able to kind of decompress for 10 days or two weeks, whatever it was which probably helped them out to a certain degree. I'm sure it did. You know, provided they weren't hurling over the side. (laughs) (laughs) My dad would never want to go on a cruise. Really? I always wanted to go on a cruise. And I think it's that Samaria. I think it's that Samaria. You know, that that was the troop ship that they went over on. And I don't think it was a cruise. So, uh, but uh, he didn't want to go on a cruise. But I think that's what really helped, you know, uh, my dad and his buddies mm-hmm. to decompress together. And Don, you mentioned Vietnam. Those guys didn't get that. They flew home on what? Well, they flew home on commercial airliners. And then they got spat at when they came through the airport. Welcome home. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's gross. Yeah. Yeah. You know, fortunately enough or unfortunately or fortunately enough for we're recognizing that and looking at those guys now and hopefully giving them the recognition that they deserve. I can't remember who, who it was, but I think it was either at the end of Ambrose's book or another one. Um, I can't remember who it was. Guy from Easy Company got sent home. Parents didn't pick him up. He had to hitchhike home. And I remember I was telling my dad this story. And the guy picked him up. Hey, I got to pull over and urinate. So they get out and they empty the water and turns around. The guy's got a gun. Robbed him of everything. All his money he made playing poker, coming back. All his bring home stuff. You know, guy roughly the same age. My dad's like, yeah, so much for the greatest generation, huh? 
It's like, yeah, a lot of them are great, but they're just like everybody else. There's you got a group of a-holes out there mm. looking to take advantage. Here's a guy who just served his country, came home, and got robbed in the United States of all his bring homes, all his back pay, everything. And just goes. I'm trying to think if that was hashy. I don't know if that was I, less than hashy. I can't. I do, rem- I do remember that. Or was it Joel Lesneski? It may have been. Although Joe Lesneski, if he if it would have been a fist fight, Joe would have beat the crap out of the guy. Yeah, I think he had a knife or a gun, but I'd have to go back and look. I remember the story, but I just can't remember who it happened to. Yeah, but it's just it's just like another one. That's hard, like your dad, shifty powers, you know. Not that not that a gunny sack full of bring homes makes it all worth it, but you know it it might be a little nice to have, especially if you have the choice of whether you leave it or lose it. I'm sure most of the guys would like to have it. And just yeah, to get robbed yeah, yeah, of it. Yeah. It's like, oh. The spoils of war. Yeah. You know, spoils of war for sure. Especially your back pay. As you know, most of that stuff went home for the family to help pay the bills and this and that. And come home and buy your own house, start your own life. So, he, guy came back from serving, has all his back pay, all this money he won, and gone. Now you just got to got to wait for the paperwork for the GI Bill to get pushed through. Yeah. Um, real quick before we move on, I, I do got a hit mail call because our listeners have been coming through with the emails lately. And if you guys want to email us, we'd love to hit, hear from you. Mail us at mail call at WTSP world war com or mail call at WTSP com. Don Henry and Jeff just wanted to give you guys a shout out here and tell you how much I really enjoyed. What's the scuttlebutt and all the content you put on there. Uh, let's see. Most of the time I've already fallen asleep when you guys are live and they actually checked in tonight and said, Hey, been looking forward to listening to the show tomorrow. Wanted to pop in and say hi before I uh, passed out. But yeah, I said, um, I always fall asleep when you guys are live, but I always put a smile on my face when I wake up to see the push notification on YouTube that you guys were live. I always walk away from each episode either with new knowledge or a good laugh or being lost in thought, reflecting on the topics you guys cover most of the times, all of the above. And um, thank you so much for the great email, and uh, we love hearing from each and every one of you guys, so please keep that coming. And if you haven't done so, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the link, find us on YouTube, so you can watch a stream live every Monday. And if you like, if you really want to help support what we do here, please click on that Patreon link. You can sign up and subscribe. It only costs you a dollar a month. And... Um, Get some T-shirts and, well, you could get hats, but they've all been taken down. But we'll see that story for next week. For some reason, the fine people at Teespring don't like the new logos. On Shirts, fine. Sweaters, fine. For some reason, hats, content concern. They say they take it down. But that's neither here nor there. I've already said earlier that I'm still slowly making my way through the rest of uh, Longest Day. But, Henry, what you reading? Yeah, so I finished Hang Tough. Such a good book. Our buddy Jared Frederick. Have you read that yet, George? I have not. I have not. I heard it's great. I, I did enjoy it uh, a lot. What I'm reading now just started a couple of days ago is this book called Red Scorpion by by Peter Sasgin, mm-hmm. and it is about a submarine in the Pacific. Um, I'm really interested in this because Peter Sasgin, who wrote this book, his dad was a machinist mate on the Rasher, the USS Rasher that it's about. So. You know, Don, like we've talked about, I mean, with me working on the project I'm working on, um, a son bringing to life his dad's story using his dad's diary, that for procedural reasons, okay, for very esoteric reasons, I'm really interested in that, kind of see how he does it. Yeah. 
So that's what I'm reading right now. Really enjoying it. Hey, George, what you reading? Well, actually, I just finished. I was on a cruise from South Africa to Rio, and I finished uh, Cold King Seed's book about winters. What's the title of that one? Um, Beyond Band of Brothers? I'm looking at my... I think I have that one. Yeah, I think I, I do have that one. I've heard of it. Yeah, Cold King Seed. Uh, I recognize that name as soon as you said it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here's a, here's kind of a funny story about Cole. <laughs> so anyway, so I get back. I get back from South America. Just the tour from South Africa to South America. I get back, and I don't get a chance to read many books for a myriad of reasons. However, I I finished that book, mm-hmm. and it was about nine thirty in the morning. He lives just right down the road in New York, someplace. Mm-hmm. So I give him a call. Ring, 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 ring. Yeah, that's it right there. So I <clears> it up and it's like, okay, yeah. So he picks up the phone and says, hello. Oh, Cole, it's George Laws. Oh, George, I'm in Hawaii. <laughs> so I said, oh, gee whiz, it's 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> I said, well, you didn't tell me you were in Hawaii. <laughs> so I said, all right. He says, I'll call you later. Yeah, call me back in seven hours. <laughs> I think this was probably the third or fourth. No, after Stephen Ambrose's. And actually, I had Beyond Band of Brothers, the Garnier and Heffron story before I actually had um, Ambrose's book. But I think after that, this is probably the next one I got. This is a great book. Yeah, I, th- I enjoyed it. I got a lot of good content out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of good content out of that. Uh, actually, I'm reading a book about uh, Winston Churchill now. So, a friend of mine gave me a book on Winston Churchill. I I've got two stacks of books. Yeah, I've got you know the the, the ones I've read and the ones I've got to read. Yeah, where we so. pretty much all are. Did you guys see Darkest Hour, the Churchill movie, a few years back? Yeah, yeah, that was really well not. done. Well, actually, here's an interesting little side note is I represented Winston Churchill's great-grandson, Jonathan Sands. He had written a book called God and Churchill. And I kind of got this a call. A friend of mine said, hey, uh, Winston Churchill's great-grandson is going to give you a call. He's just coming out with a brand-new book, and I told him, you want to talk to George Luz? I don't know why. But anyway, so so I assisted him in getting him some speaking opportunities. That's awesome. And, uh, but, yeah, so that was kind of neat, and I, I was able to uh, – provide a little bit of uh, opportunities for him and uh, learn a little bit more about Winston Churchill, which was pretty cool. Right. When that book, when the book came out, what, 92? Yep. Did you or your siblings or any of the, the children of the men of easy company, did you guys, I can't imagine you did, but could you guys foresee the impact it would have on all your families? I mean, could you imagine then that these many years later you would be attached to these tours and represent your father the way you are? No, not at that point, you know, because the book came out and it was well received, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, there's a lot of great books out there about units in World War II. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until, it wasn't until the, um, uh, you know, Hanks and Spielberg bought the rights to the two books there, Citizen Soldier and Band of Brothers, so. But yeah, and it's just been an amazing ride, amazing ride for for all of us to 
you know, to share these stories and to, to admire the sacrifices and, and, and moving forward to, to thank, um, you know, Hanks and Spielberg for telling their story. And I, I think, and, and the actors did such a, an amazing job and continue to be great ambassadors. Um, and I, I think what my dad probably would have taken away from it is that he had hoped that all the other men and women that had they could share their stories and um, hopefully their sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters would ask them questions about their service because we all know whether you were training people from this side or pushing uh pencils uh, across paper on the other side in Europe or in the Pacific or whatever it was, wherever you were, if you were kicking doors in or carrying stuff around, you did something and it was an important part of each uh, of the effort. And I think that's what he would have hoped for. And I think those are great words to go out on. So thank each and every one of you for your continued support of our podcast for myself Jeff Capsetta, who couldn't be here tonight, Henry Sledge, and George Lez Jr. We want to thank each and every one of you, and we will talk to you all this time next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>